The views and opinions expressed on the Untold History Revealed podcast are solely those of the individual stating them and are not necessarily those of the Untold History Revealed owners. Now sit back and grab a cup of coffee or tea as we discuss some moments in history that may have been untold or forgotten. Another episode of Untold History Revealed starts now. Hi, gang, and welcome to another episode of Untold History Revealed. I am your host, Sean Donnelly. And I'm your co-host, Marianne Donnelly. Uh, this is part two of an episode that we're talking about Charles Lindbergh, a hero with a tragedy. And um, if you haven't heard our last episode, I suggest that you stop right now, go back and <laughs> listen to that, and uh, I'll bring you up to speed. Um for those of you who don't know who we are and why we're doing this, we are owners of Dark Shadow Ghost Tours and PanicD.com. And throughout the years, we've done a lot of research, investigations, things like that, and collected a lot of information for our other websites that relate to history, forensics, paranormal. And we decided, just as a little hobby, that we would do this little weekly podcast. And, um, yeah, that's pretty much it, right? I'm getting pretty good at that. Yeah. I don't have to read it off a script anymore. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's continue, continue on with uh, what you were talking about. All right, so, so um, in the last podcast, we talked about Charles Lindbergh and how he rose to his fame and that he ended up having this poor child of his, Charlie, um, who was kidnapped. And so um, just a real quick recap of that. He was kidnapped on March 1st of 1932. Uh, there was a series of 15 different ransom notes that were sent from uh, the kidnappers to the Limbergs, uh, an intermediate, Mr. Condon. Uh, so there was 15 notes that came from them. Um, and the body of the poor child was, was found on May 12th. Um, a couple months later, uh, four miles from the house, uh, 45 miles, 45 feet off of the road, and it turned out that there were some head injuries and that the baby appeared to have been dead for two months, which would take it right back to the date that he basically died, was the date that he was kidnapped. The night of the kidnapping. Right. So, um, we kind of we left finished. Off with you talking yeah, about we kind of finished. The money was being found spent. Mm hmm. Okay. Um, in April, on April 2nd, Mr. Condon met with. Cemetery John, as he's come to known, be known, gave him $50,000. Um, and then beginning on April 4th, two days later, this money starts to get used. It starts showing up in, in society, uh, in grocery stores and theaters and things like that. Uh, and all of the people who spent this money all matched the description of Cemetery John. Now, the the gentleman that they actually caught mm -hmm. bruno that was his first name yes but we didn't tell anybody that okay. oh yet. i'm sorry but Spoiler. does he match the description of cemetery john uh not quite which leads to conspiracy multiple people multiple people hmm. okay Yes. I'm sorry. That's you want okay. me to shut up? I'll just. No, that's I'll right. I'll write you down just my said, questions to you. You said at the point. end of last week, you <laughs> said 
no, we're not going to tell them who did it. We're going to wait until that comes to that in the timeline. <laughs> okay. It's Sorry. all right. I only gave his first name. But Love you, dear. Okay. All, right. <laughs> all right. So, anyway, um, along this time period, money's being spent. They're not catching this person, um, but they are kind of making a little map and putting push pins in where was this money being spent. So that's what they're kind of doing um, with the FBI because they're not going to let this just fall and drop because the baby was found dead. They do continue in the investigation, and it actually continues for over two years before they get their next big lead. But within this time period where they're like kind of watching the money, they also um, get a guy named Arthur Kohler who is um, a wood expert from the U.S. Forest Service and the USDA, and he is asked to look at the ladder. Remember in the last one we said that the ladder that the kidnapper brought to the estate the day that the baby was kidnapped was actually left behind. Mm -hmm. And it was a homemade ladder. And it was a homemade ladder. And so they asked this guy, hey, can you look at this and tell us everything you can about the wood that this ladder's made out of. So he goes ahead and he uh, examines it. He numbers all of the pieces. Every single piece of that ladder, he labels that, gives it a number, um, and he determines that most of it is from yellow pine. Which, by the way, do you know during the trial, there were people outside. Okay, so this was a big deal to Oh, yeah, absolutely. 60,000 people go to this. Yeah, people were, like, climbing in the windows trying to get in. outside at the trial, they were selling little ladders. Nice. (laughs) That is something that I would want. A souvenir ladder from the trial. I don't know. That's kind of sick. I would want one. I would definitely want Uh, one. I'm surprised (laughs) you don't have one. I'm going to be looking on eBay now. (laughs) Why did I bring it up? Souvenir ladder from the trial. Anyhow. I saw a picture of a lady. She was holding two of them and smiling. <gasps> she got two? I didn't get yeah, one? Little tiny little ladders. I want one. Now uh, you know what you can get me for Christmas. Yeah. Find me souvenir a ladder. souvenir ladder from the Limburg Baby Trial. Wow. <laughs> so he found that the uh, wood of this was made out of yellow pine. And that um, there seemed to be some old nail holes in it. So it was repurposed. So the wood that made this was repurposed. And he said that it was repurposed from something from indoor construction. So based on what he noticed about it, it wasn't something that was, you know, in the elements and, and all that. It was something that was used before and it was used indoors. And that comes to be a very big thing in the near future. And I'll leave it at that. Suspense. Okay. All right. So we take and we move on to continuing to watch the money. If you remember um, from the last podcast, or if you didn't, uh, $40,000 of the $50,000 that was handed out was in what they called gold certificates. And that was actually a really good thing because on April 5th of 1933, we bounced a year past, so we've been looking at this money going and showing up in the population now for a year, but 
a year after, basically, on April 5th of 1933, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he actually uh, signs an executive order requiring that all gold certificates get turned in. They have to return all gold certificates uh, to banks. And they, he puts a stipulation that it has to be done by May 1st of 1933. So he says, I want within a, all within of... Less than a month. Less than a month. I wow. want all the gold certificates turned in to the banks. And you know what? If you don't turn it in, there's going to be some consequences. Because we don't want you hoarding these things. We want you to turn them in. I would have hoarded them. I, I don't know. Would you have... Because if you were caught with one, you would get a $10,000 fine and or a 10-year jail sentence. I would have kept one. You would have kept one? Yeah, because can you imagine what that's worth now? Mm. Well, just so you know, there's like $30,000 worth of these that are still missing from the Lindbergh case. Oh. That were never turned in. So (laughs) that could actually be worth a tidy sum today. Course, you're probably gonna go to jail. No, um, I doubt it. In any case, um, he signs this into law, and so people start turning these gold certificates in on May 2nd. And remember, everything had to be turned in by May 1st. Mm-hmm. Okay, May 2nd, 1933, the Federal Reserve Bank in New York actually is going through the deposits from the first and finds. $2,980 worth of gold certificates. They're deposited by someone named J.J. Faulkner. That were related to That the were on the list of the registered um, monies that were given to the kidnappers. Okay. So now we're looking and say, oh my goodness, we've got a suspect. And what does J.J. stand for? So J.J. Faulkner... Um, actually, it, they trace it back to someone named Jane Faulkner, but she died in 1923. She didn't make that deposit. Wow. She did not turn those things in. She's been dead for quite some time. If she made that deposit, we got some paranormal <laughs> things to start talking about. Great. So, um, they have the handwriting on those slips from the um, deposits that, you know, they're going to use later. Okay, But it turns out this, this uh, Faulkner was not alive. So, darn, we don't have our suspect again. So we move on. And we continue to see some of these bills showing up in the population. The gold certificates. The gold certificates. Still. Show up in September of 1934. How are they being showed up? People are spending them? Yes. Somebody shows up at a gas station and tries to pay for 98 cents worth of gas with a $10 gold certificate. Now, the gas station attendant is a little freaked out. He knows the law. We had to have these things turned in. I don't even know if the bank is going to take this now. So, he takes the bill. He, he actually accepts the money. But he takes it, and on the edge of the bill, he writes down the license plate number of the person who handed it to him. 
not because it was anything related to Lindbergh. It was because it was a ten. It was gold a, it was a gold certificate. Okay. Yeah, he had that no idea. Now. I heard about that before, and I'm like, well, why would this person write that down on there, just out of the blue, not knowing anything? But right, he didn't. Since know. it was a ten dollar gold certificate, he yeah. wrote down that. He didn't have the list of all of those right. bills that were out in circulation, but he does write this down because he's like, uh, I don't know, this, I might have to come after this guy for my 98 cents. Right. So, uh, he goes and he deposits it at the bank, or someone from the gas station deposits it at the bank. I don't know if it was him specifically. Um, the bank calls the FBI and says, hey, uh, we just had a deposit of one of these gold certificates that you're looking for, and it's a gold certificate, which we've had out of circulation for over a year now. And they say, okay, and say they come to investigate it, and they say, oh, by the way, the guy wrote down the license plate of who gave it to him. Wow. They take, they run that license plate, and it comes back to someone named Bruno Richard Hopman. Now, turns out, um, in case you're curious, uh, the license plate number was 4U13-41. I find those, like, exciting that, you know, we know the exact license plate number. But anyway, turns out that he was a German immigrant. If you ever read uh, any of the um, uh, ransom notes, you know that they were looking for a German immigrant because, mm -hmm. he, you know, the, the way, the way it was written. Um, and he was a carpenter by trade. Which, could have which made means he could have made the ladder. So they're but like really intrigued. But he didn't look like Cemetery John. No, he doesn't quite match the description of Cemetery John, though. So they go to his house anyway. They go through his house. They find $14,600 in the ransom money. It actually matches all the numbers that were ransom notes that were the ransom money. Um, they find a small handgun. And they find that in the attic, there's a sawed-off board where somebody removed a piece of one of the bracings in the attic that is yellow pine, which is what the ladder was made out of. And in addition to that... Um, they also find Mr. Condon's phone number written on the door frame inside of a closet. And Mr. Condon was? The guy who was the go-between between, between yeah. the kidnapper and Lindbergh and actually handed off the money, met in the cemetery with Cemetery John. Does anybody think that Mr. Condon was suspect? You know, I do. I think he was, like, kind of creepy. I mean, So he's uh, a teacher ex-principal teacher comes out yeah. of the blue and says, here, I'll do it. Yeah, and yeah. and everybody's like all hunky-dory that he does it. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. He, he's a little fishy on my end. Yeah. But, anyway, so they find all of these things at his house. Of course, they arrest him. Oh, yeah. So he gets arrested. Uh, they call in Arthur again, uh, Arthur Kohler, uh, check out this piece of wood um, that we found in his attic. And turns out it matches to the um, grain pattern of rail 16 of the ladder 
So now we're going, oh, this guy has the money. He's got a gun. He's got Condon's phone number. He's got yellow pine that's been sawed off in his attic. And it matches up with the grain pattern of rail 16 of the uh, ladder that was found at the kidnapping site. Now, for those of you who are not into, like, the grain pattern, you're like, what's that mean? Um, if you've ever, you know, cut through wood, you know that there's all the rings, in, all the growth rings inside. Well, when you do a long board of that, you start to see this patternation, uh, and um, they call that the grain of the wood. And you can actually match that up from one piece to another piece and say these two pieces were once connected. And so that's exactly what they did. They said this piece that's in his attic matches that which is on the kidnapping ladder. I have a question. Okay. Should I raise my hand? <laughs> okay, Mr. Donley. Cemetery John. Back yeah. When, uh, Condon was talking to him. Uh-huh. Did he mention he had a German accent? Yes. Really? Mm-hmm. He had a thick German accent, actually. And, uh... So if that wasn't Bruno, then there were other German immigrants that were involved. Yes. Yes. So, <clears throat> they take Bruno into custody, obviously by all of the stuff that they've got on him. Right. He's somehow involved. If he's not the mastermind, he's involved. Um, well, yeah. They're I'll, looking I'll at it saying, money. we've got $14,600 that is in your garage that matches all this money from this, you know, kidnapping. We know that $5,100 was already spent. Where Where's the other $30,000? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I, that money is not mine. I don't know. That's not my money. That fourteen thousand six hundred dollars. That's not mine. That's not mine. That's not mine. But he does know about it. It's not his, but he knows about it. Yeah. And to this day, we still don't know where the other thirty thousand dollars are. So I, I just want to interrupt you here a second. Of course. You know, there's a particular website company out there that I can't stand. <laughs> <laughs> and here's another reason why I can't stand them. Um, I was looking at some stuff about that cemetery where they were meeting, and you Woodlawn have all, cemetery. all your evidence and research and everything that you talk about, everything. It's Woodlawn Cemetery. Right. Well, this particular website saying it's a different cemetery. I'm not going to say their name because they'll probably sue me, but, right. you know, check your facts. Yeah. People. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've had about five it's... different sources that say it's Woodlawn Cemetery, and he was told to meet there in the ransom notes. So it's a photograph website, by the way. Okay, stop now. <laughs> They're saying it's Old Saint Raymond Cemetery, which is wrong. But anyways, okay, go ahead. Sorry, I had to have that's, a little rant. That's all right. All right, so there's still thirty thousand dollars of this money that's missing. And it's still missing today. Uh, we we did not uh, since since Hopman was captured. Um, we have not seen that any more used actually anywhere since then. Since Bruno was captured. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, as I was saying, while he's in, you know in custody and they're questioning him, he's like, I <coughs> this is not my money. I this was not mine. I got it from a guy named Isidore Finch. Fish. 
I call him Finch. I don't know why, but Fish. Um, and uh, he says, I got this. He was my partner, and uh, I left. He left to go over to um, visit some relatives in Leipzig, and he left me with this shoebox of important papers that I was going to hold on to him. He owes me $7,000. I was going to hold on to these important papers. At some point in the future, we're going to, you know, get back together. Um, turns out that this fish guy applied for a passport the day that the baby's body was discovered. So when little Lindbergh's body was discovered on May 12th of 1932, he applies for a passport. He leaves from the United States. From the, he okay. he gets a passport from the United States to leave and go to um, visit some relatives. So these guys were U.S. citizens. They they were yeah. Um, now December fifth, Hotman uh, gets this shoebox of important papers from him before he sails away. He puts it up in a in a closet on a shelf. <coughs> and leaves it there. And a while later, he notices that there's a leak that's leaking down onto it and destroyed this box. And so the box is just falling apart. And he gets that, pulls it down, and turns out it's full of money. And it's $14,600 in it, but this money's all wet. And so he's like, well, the guy owes me seven grand, so, you know, maybe when he comes back, I'll just give him the other part and just keep what I am owed, you know. But he takes it and he puts it in the garage and he, and he dries it out, and then he hides it in his garage. Unfortunately, Fish dies of tuberculosis in 1934. While he's still away, he never returns to the United States. Uh, so there's no way to, you know, say that this guy really is, you know, we don't, we don't really have anything where he's talked to us about it. You know, he said anything back as to why so he had possible. this money. Could have been that guy. It could have been Fish. Okay. And since they were partners, he would have access to being around him. Maybe he did go and so, spend hey, some time at his ladder. house. Maybe he said, make me a ladder. Um, yeah, we don't know. But uh, this becomes known as the, the fish story. Did that come up during the trial? This comes up, uh, I'm not sure if they used it in the trial, but it came up in his interrogations. So, um, Isidore Fish is looked at, but Houtman is still the key guy, um, and they still end up using him. Well, Bruno Richard Houtman, um, he ends up being convicted. And so... Of murder one. He, he gets convicted of murder one because... As he's being, you know, held, they kind of look into his past a little bit. And it turns out that he comes from a place named Comets, Germany. And while he was over there, he wasn't exactly the sweet, innocent little guy he's trying to portray himself as. Because while he's over there, he actually uses a ladder to go into the second story of the mayor's house in Germany and steals money and watches from him. Really? 
second story, he uses a ladder. Seems to be his M.O. Yeah, interesting. And he and an accomplice hold up a woman with a baby carriage walking down the road one day at gunpoint. So here's now a baby, an accomplice, and a gun. And he's got a gun that they find at his house. So these things, you know, get him sent to jail in Germany. Somehow he manages to get out of Germany, get to the United States, get into the United States, apparently become a citizen, you know, because, you know, he, he somehow manages to, to stick around here for a while. In 1932, before that, he was working as a carpenter. Right, mm-hmm. 1932, just after the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, he doesn't. Be, he's not a carpenter anymore. He he leaves that profession and he begins trading stocks. He becomes well, a stock sense. trader and he never works again. <laughs> so somehow he's managed to acquire seven thousand dollars that Fish owes him. So how did he? Where did he get seven thousand dollars? You know. Um, he's doing stock trading now. He doesn't ever work again, but yet he's got this hoard of money that's, yeah. you know, in his house. Uh, I don't know. Did you want to talk some more about the uh, the trial? Uh, yeah, but uh, guess what? We're going to take a break first. Take a break? Yeah. <gasps> All right. All right, so let's take a quick break. We'll come back and talk about the trial. Okay. All right, so we'll be right back. calendars close your doors and turn off all the lights as twice a month bte radio brings you a new episode of the haunted spotlight sean and marianne donnelly of dark shadow ghost tours dig deep into the archives of the panic d database and take you inside a different location with each new episode learn the rich history and hear the paranormal claims of some of the most infamous and unsuspecting locations from around the country Ever wonder what roams the property or lurks behind those closed doors? Curious about the true history of that creepy house that sits down the street? Want to know what evidence a paranormal investigation group may have captured? Then find out every other Sunday and tune in to BTE Radio for another chilling episode of The Haunted Spotlight, if you dare. All right, we are back. So, continue on. Talk about the trial. All right, so you were going to talk about the trial. Oh, I was? Yeah, you were going to tell me some juicy tidbits about the trial. Well, like I said earlier, okay, there was it, it was a big deal. I mean, this went on and on and on and on. And um, the prosecution presented this case. Um, it was days, uh, the trial. Lindbergh was there with his wife. For most of the trial. Mm-hmm. Okay. And actually there was rumors that were going around at one time. That when the defense took over. And uh, Bruno. I don't know. It was Hotman. Hotman. Um, when he was going to uh, take the stand. There was rumors that Lindbergh was armed. And he was going to kill him. You know. 
um, it was it was just a big thing, you know, all these reporters and and uh, sightseers and that kind of stuff just converged on this little town. So, anyways, it was a, it's just a small town. I mean, even like today, the population is just over 4,000, but it was the county seat where the courthouse was, and it was like 700 reporters that came to this <clears throat> trial. I yeah, know people were literally climbing, scaling the outside of the building to climb into the windows so that they could get in there because it was so popular. After so many people were trying to get in to see this. Yeah, and it would case. line up like in early hours of the morning so that when the doors opened, they could just cram in there and get a seat before they were turned away. And, you know, yeah. it was just nuts, just yeah. crazy. I've uh, seen video. They have video of, of yeah. the outside and everything. And <clears throat> I've seen video of the, the people climbing in the windows. That's what just strikes me about this whole thing. And then, uh, you know, as I said earlier, there were people outside that were selling the. The little ladders, little ladders and uh uh yeah but anyways the prosecution started off they put ann murrow on the stand first and she kind of started to go over and recount what happened and then uh they put Lindbergh or the prosecutor put Lindbergh on second and he just went over the whole story in in detail and that started it yeah. off and condon was on um, Goss was on <coughs> the nurse or yeah, nanny. Yeah, they put her on. Um, so they went through all the evidence, everything, piecing it all together, pointing it, you know, towards Bruno. And then, basically, when the prosecution rested, and it was time for uh, the defense, they they only had a few witnesses character witnesses and one of the people that they put on was bruno they put him on the stand which i, I don't a I don't, lot of times yeah, a lot of times don't, don't that do that yeah but he was on a stand for 17 hours 17 hours and he was lying the whole time like the prosecutor kept bringing up well you said this when you were arrested and you said this were you lying then yes i was are you lying now no i'm not are you sure you know that kind of thing and just totally tore him apart <laughs> and basically um the jury who basically became celebrities you know um they um what's the word Ends with the D. Decided. Well, okay, whatever. <laughs> uh, 11 hours it took them. Um, and they came back and they, uh, uh, guilty, murder one. Now, what I found interesting was the end. When the jury come back, deliberated, that was the word I was looking for. Oh. Um, and it was time for the jury to make their decision, that kind of thing. The Lindberghs left. They left the country. They went to England. For three years. Yes. They left and... Um, they claimed that there was um, threats against their second child, John's life. Yeah. I, I think they just had enough. They just wanted... You know, what are they going to do? They're not going to bring little Charles back. You know, whatever happens is going to happen. Yeah. Well, they did their job. They thought they got their man, that kind of thing. Yeah. So they weren't in the courthouse when they heard the guilty... Um, sentence and immediately um not guilty sentence guilty 
uh, so thing, but immediately was, they deliberated the sentence. Which yeah, was so death. he was convicted February 13th, 1935. They did decide they're going to put him to death. Um, they were going to put him to death by the electric chair. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they scheduled it for January 17th. And then he got a stay, and they scheduled it for February 17th. And then something else happened. Yeah, they ended up appeal process. Yeah, they ended like up, um, he actually was put to death by electric chair April 3rd of 1936. And uh, that was at 8.47 p.m. Yep, that was it. Yeah. But was that the guy? See, so I, I don't I think bring he was up. the only guy. I think there was more involved. I bring that but. up one because I have more suspects for you, but also remember that guy J or that fictitious J.J. Faulkner that you know put that money, the gold, deposited all the gold. Uh, certificates yes. the day that it was due in and turns, and out, she turns out she was dead yeah um, the governor governor Hoffman actually received a note in January of 1936 and it said you arrested the wrong man and they signed it J.J. Faulkner and it the handwriting is consistent with the note um and the deposit tickets that the suspicious Faulkner actually deposited that money. Wow, interesting. <laughs> so the potential accomplice or the other person said, you know, look, he wasn't it. <laughs> Maybe it was that fish person. Yeah. And this was Fish's accomplice. We don't know. He said Fish died. But Fish season. died, right. Yeah. So maybe this was Fish's accomplice, and Hopman really was telling the truth when he said that was he was teacher. innocent. You think it was the teacher? <laughs> <coughs> Dr. Condon is not one of the suspects that I So have who to are talk some about. of the other suspects then? Um, you might be surprised. I know they suspected Lindbergh at one time. Lindbergh was actually I don't think a it was him. big big suspect um there's a guy named lloyd gardner and he's uh an investigator um and he looked into the has looked into this case he's he's kind of uh he's so one of those people, people are still out there investigating oh absolutely absolutely yeah um john douglas a criminal profiler for the fbi he actually did uh I think it was a maybe a PBS special. I don't know. It was like an hour-long thing. I show my kids at school um, part of his uh, his, his um, show where they kind of go over some of the evidence. I show them that handwriting section because they did do some handwriting analysis um, for the case. Um, but Lindbergh was one of the ones that, he, that this guy Gardner actually says... I think it was actually Lindbergh who was involved. I don't think it was Lindbergh, just based on one fact. What's that? Lindbergh and his wife Mm -hmm. were not publicity hounds or publicity. They didn't want to be in the limelight. They Mm. They were thrust into it. You know, and even the fact that right when it was over, they didn't want to hear. Could you imagine, like, them leaving the courtroom after the the guilty you know and all that and then just they just they just left 
you know, just to get away from it. All right. Well, and I why have would some he do that? that maybe, I have some things that maybe might change your mind and give you some reasons why he might do that. All right. Well, you got... <laughs> I got some time? You have about 15 minutes to sway me. All right. Well, I'll try. Go. All right. So, <laughs> Lindbergh himself was going to be the one who was going to coordinate the entire process. He didn't trust the, the police. He controlled them and the investigation. Um, he kept the ransom notes se- secret, a-, a bunch of these other ransom notes secret. He kept it secret from even the police sometimes. Um, he uh, was supposed to um, not be there that night. He was supposed to actually be giving a speech at um, someplace in New York. He had a speech speaking engagement the night of the kidnapping, and he didn't show up. He missed it. He never. He was always early. Uh, he never missed a, an appearance. He missed that one, and he said he forgot about it. And some people think that that was so that he could be in that home to direct um, the kidnapping from the inside. But why would he do it to his own child? He might do that because of the eugenics movement. See, um, for those of you who don't don't know about the eugenics movement, and you might not know about it, um, this is where they were trying to uh, look at superior human beings. It's kind of like the Nazi movement uh, that they were really in, where they wanted to sterilize physically and mentally weak individuals, but to breed the strong and smart individuals. And his son, Charlie actually showed some signs that he might be having some inferior genes. He might not be the the great, you know, Mr. Lindbergh that everybody thought he was. Um, they, they actually showed that uh, his family doctor in um, reports showed that he uh, made notations of open and enlarged fontanels on the child, which should have been closed by the time that he had examined that child. Um, that the, during examinations, uh, the family doctor had difficulty getting the child to stand up straight. Um, he described in his notes that the child potentially had moderate rickety conditions, moderate rickety condition, and he was actually treating him uh, because that actually comes from a vitamin D deficiency. They were actually treating him and giving him vitamin D supplements. So the Limbergs were actually medicating Which their leads child to the diet. That might lead to the diet, yes. So he has this special. So you're need. saying that he staged this whole thing? Well, one, not I'm not saying you're saying. One of the theories right. is that he staged this whole thing because his son was sick. Right, because in those days, if you had a child that had something wrong, look at the Kennedys. I know. You know. Yeah. You yeah. did. You got them out of the house, and you got them to an institution. Yeah. And so the idea was that he didn't actually plan for the baby to get killed. He, they suggest that he planned the kidnapping in a way to get the kid out of the house and get him secretly into an institution. Also, they would never be found. So he wouldn't be found, but that he wouldn't die. But okay, he would I guess not I kind found. of buy into that a little um, bit. But does this lead to the whole thing, which we didn't even talk about yet, that when they were in Europe, they went to Germany, but he went to Germany because of their military. Uh, air air uh, air force air force building yeah. up and he wanted to see their you know their airplanes and stuff and he actually flew german nazi planes there's actually video footage of charles Lindbergh flying a nazi plane but i think he was just naive 
you know, this was pre-American involvement into World War II. We, we did do that podcast a little bit about Amelia Earhart. It was around the same time, okay? And he was just like, ooh, airplanes. I want to go look at the airplane. Well, that's a potential thing. But he was, he supposedly, because he, in, he um, embraced the idea of eugenics, the Nazis liked him. And so the Nazis uh, kind of let him come and play with them because he embraced their their ideals of let's create the great this great um this great race and did you know that while he was over in europe after the war in 1958 he um used an assumed name named Carew kent and actually fathered seven other children with three german women in secrecy and that those children and the women were were um, made to keep that secret. Supposedly, it was in a way to you know continue to spread his seed. The, the Does great, his wife you know, know about this? I, I don't believe so. Um, but in two thousand and three, after his wife was dead, he was dead. The the children's parents were apparently dead. Um, in two thousand and three, there were actually several German children who actually had DNA testing done and proved that he was their father. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so now this kind of makes this, maybe we should change the name of this stuff, a little controversy. <laughs> yeah, so he was, uh, he was definitely involved in this. He didn't want um, the money to have the, the numbers written down so that they could track the money. He didn't want that. They had to force him to do that. Which ended up leading to the capture yeah. of Hauptmann. Um, he refused to allow the police to to tail Cemetery John. They wanted to um, when the when the person when the kidnapper came and met with John Condon, they wanted to uh, follow tail the guy who leaves, and he said absolutely not. He wouldn't let him do it, and they think that potentially that might have been all part of this, you know. Thing of trying to get and these were German immigrants. They were. Wow. So, are you so sure now that Mr. No. Lindbergh is, you know, innocent? No, not necessarily. <laughs> no. no, you're not sure he's innocent. I'm not sure about anything at this point. <laughs> All right. Well, another one of the, <laughs> another one of the um, suspects. Well, let's stay on this just for a second because I don't think I'll have time oh. to do my wrap up. But All this right. part with Europe and Germany, okay. And that kind of thing. Go ahead. Like I said. He went over there to, you know, but when they did come back to the United States, this was when uh, FDR put out a plea, and I forget the, see, I need to take notes, um, put out a plea that they were talking about United States wasn't going to send troops over to help uh, Europe, but they were going to send resources to help during World War II. They were going to send tanks, planes, supplies, things like that, and, <clears throat> um, Lindbergh came out publicly against that, against doing that. He said that the continental United States, there there are no planes or anything that could take off, bomb the United States, or invade the United States, so we had no immediate threat. So why waste our resources to help out Europe, which was against Nazi Germany, um, and Hitler and, and all of them. He didn't say it that way, but you know mm-hmm. this kind of ties into that. Um, why send those resources when we're safe here? 
Okay, that was I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. right. again, but that was this whole movement that was against FDR and all that kind of stuff, and it kind of like blackballed him a little bit. FDR, like they took away his commission, um, military commission, all this other stuff. Eventually, he got it back under um, Eisenhower uh, for his efforts after Pearl Harbor. But um, yeah, then Pearl Harbor happened, you know, which was Hawaii, and he didn't take in consideration. Yeah, they could come over here on aircraft carriers, but um, okay. he went. And I'll, I'll I'll let you continue. But the way he kind of like redeemed himself was as he went and helped out as a uh, civilian consultant that leads to like the beginning of our last podcast where I said he knew how to fly these planes and how to mechanically and he taught our pilots to be able to take a plane that was rated for 400 miles and fly them to go 800 miles farther which kind of advanced us while we were in the war and because of those efforts, he kind of redeemed himself and got his commission back and so on and so forth. Was he part of, like, the efforts for With the Doolittle? Do I think it was after the Doolittle mm. thing. When it, they actually, McCarthy, that's immediately what I thought of. Well, when McCarthy you were asked, that. hey, I need Lindbergh. You know, and that's what they called him Slim. I need him here to help me teach these pilots how to get further mileage out of what we're doing. And he did. And he actually flew some missions. Um, and that kind of redeems some. But that was against Japan. Okay? Right, not so, Germany. Okay, continue on. See, right. I got my part, my wrap-up part in there before there we run you out go, of time. Before we run out so, of time. <laughs> All right, so another one of the uh, suspects, <coughs> uh, because they, they really thought it was an inside job because of the fact that you know they didn't know that they were going to be there that night. They weren't supposed to be there. It was a Tuesday night. They weren't supposed to be there. So Lindbergh knew that they were going to be there. And Violet Sharp, one of the maids, um, a a waitress maid servant in the uh, Moreau household where they were normally supposed to stay, may have been involved. Um, They say that she may have been involved because she, um, when she was questioned, she gave inconsistent and um, opposing information to the police like she would say one thing and then the next time she would talk to him she would say something different and they looked at that and they said well that doesn't make sense and they went to go and interview her for a third time and the third time they went to go and interview her tell me she was dead close she ran up to her bedroom drank silver polish she killed and killed herself get out are you serious and that yeah, that was on June 10th of 1932. Why would she do that? Why would she do that? And that's a, a question as to, you know, why? Why why would you, one, have such inconsistent stories that they want to come back a third time? And why would you run up and kill yourself? Now, some people say that that shows that she was part of this group, that she was guilty. Of course, she was just batshit crazy. But the, uh, but the other side of that is that she just felt guilty. Um, that she felt guilty that maybe she received a phone call, um, supposedly, that evening, and they were inquiring about whether or not the Lindberghs were home, and she said, no, they're not here tonight, they're in their Hopewell home tonight. So she kind of showed them where the child would have been. So they're saying, well, maybe she felt guilty about that. And I can, I can 
go with that a little bit, just because you know she done it, she did it by accident. By accident, because there 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 was a time when you got a phone call on your phone and yeah. I answered it and I gave a trivial piece of information like the name of our company, and minutes later they had taken over a our lot of Go your account. accounts. Yeah, yeah. so. Uh, I felt terrible about that. I felt it was all my fault. I can I can actually fit into Violet's shoes and, and say I feel that I was responsible. She would feel she was responsible. But I don't know Which that warning, I would folks, be enough. Don't give out personal or incriminating information over the phone. I love when people call and ask me stuff. I just yell back at them and then they hang up on me. Yeah, but, but in her case... And in the in my case, they were trivial pieces of information that, like, you wouldn't think that that was anything that anyone was going to use for for bad. Like for us, what's the name of your company? Ah, yeah. that's a that's basic information. Everybody could know the name of my company. Where are they? Are the Lindberghs home tonight? No, they're in Hopewell. What do you need? You know? Yeah. Again, trivial pieces of information that well, if that, people you know, call you and start asking you questions like that, first of all, say. If you don't know who it is, ask who it is. Yeah. In most cases, if it's somebody that's seeking information, they're going to hang up on you. Yeah. Who is this? Why do you need to know? What do you want? This is a private number. <laughs> Seriously. But sometimes How many times those do they things, hang up on me? Sometimes those things are just not automatic. Like, it's if automatic for you the, to answer a question. If I don't know who the know? person is, I'm not giving them anything. Yeah. But that's just the kind of guy I am. That is just the kind of guy you are. <laughs> All right. Another big suspect that was not actually on the radar of the police throughout the entire investigation that came up in an investigation within the last decade or so is a guy named John Knoll. And the theory is that this is actually Cemetery John. Really? Yes. Um, They came across this because um, there was a guy... Yes, he was. There was a guy named um, Bob Zorn that kind of uh, found one of the people investigating. He's like, hey, I have a story from my dad, Gene Zorn, from way no back. Way. I know. When I, when I, know I, Gene Yeah, Zorn. I know. Yeah. We know a Gene Zorn. Um, it's not the same Gene Zorn, though. But What was his name? John what? John Knoll. Um, but apparently, when this guy named Gene Zorn was 15 years old, back in 1931, there was a guy who was a neighbor named John Knoll, who was a German immigrant, who kind of became friendly with him. He was a, a deli worker, um, and he invited him to Palisades Amusement Park in New Jersey. Um, and so he's like very excited. He's going to go. They have the biggest saltwater pool in you know the country. Um, I don't know if it was in the world, but it was definitely in the country. And he's like, I'm going to get to go to this. Well, while he's there, um, waiting for them when they get there are two other guys, um, Walter, who was um, John Knoll's brother, who was also a deli clerk that this kid Gene Zorn knew. Um, and another guy who was German-speaking named Bruno. And um, they are talking about someplace called Englewood, New Jersey. Englewood is where the Moreau established a home front here, and that's where the Limburgs were staying while their Hopewell home was being built. Um, they think um, that perhaps... That's where they were. This is 
John Knoll is Cemetery John because of this conversation. Because later on in time, when Gene grows up in 1963, he's reading an issue in True Magazine in the December 1963 issue, uh, a story about the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. And within that, they kind of talk about this guy named Bruno, and he's like, Bruno, Englewood, oh my gosh. And he remembers that event. Mm-hmm. So that, that article caused him to remember some things. And um, turns out, if you look into this John Knoll guy, uh, three weeks after the ransom was paid, he started giving away gifts. He even gave Gene Zorn some um, stamps for his stamp collection because he had a little stamp collection and he got some good stamps from him at that time. Um, and he ends up, he's a deli worker, right? He's, they don't make much, right. right? He ends up taking a trip on a boat, the SS Manhattan, to Europe for um, quite some time. The tickets were seven hundred dollars. Where is he? So he got money. Yeah. So he goes to Hamburg, um, Germany, and and he goes to Germany, and he leaves there um, with these tickets that are six years worth of his rent for where he's living now. It would be worth six years of rent. And uh, so he's not living in like a great house. But suddenly he's you know going on this trip. Well, he comes, he stays there, and um, he leaves and goes on this trip three weeks before Hopman goes on trial, and he comes back the day that he got convicted. So he's gone the whole trial, like nobody's gonna get me. After he knows that he's convicted, he comes back to the United States, and. You want to know something else about John? He has some weird abnormality with his thumbs. Remember Cemetery John had some large thumb on his left hand? There was something weird about his left thumb. Well, he actually has large discolored thumbs. So that was Cemetery John. So he may have been. And if you look at a picture of him... If you look at a picture of him, it's almost a dead ringer for the sketch, the police sketch of Cemetery John. But Condon says it wasn't him. He's like, no, that's not Cemetery John. Because they asked Condon about this guy. And he's like, yeah, no, I definitely saw Hoffman. I, I talked to Hoffman. He was adamant in the trial and everything that he saw Hoffman. It was Hoffman. So those, that's John Knoll. I'm bringing John Knoll in here. Now, we have handwriting samples. And handwriting was done. Handwriting was done for um, John Knoll recently. And also, uh, again, with um, Bruno Hauptmann. Uh, at the time of the the kidnapping and murder, they looked at Hotman's handwriting, and the experts said 
oh, it's definitely him, although the defense experts said it was definitely not. Yeah, they did that during the trial. Right. They actually had compared that to a letter that Hopman had sent to someone named Mrs. Beggs, and so they compared it to the Beggs letters, and today we have digital handwriting analysis that we can do that's a little bit more detailed, and a guy named Swahari, Mr. Swahari, actually did some computer handwriting analysis, compared six of the notes from the um, kidnapping ransom notes to the beg notes and said that Hotman very unlikely wrote the notes. And Noel was compared, and he was also unlikely. Really? So somebody else wrote them? They say somebody else wrote them. I personally think that the handwriting does match these guys. Um certain letter combinations and things they look at it with the computer and say negative values and everything but if you look at the individual letters and letter formations I, I do agree that they, they were probably part of this and they did write some of the letters um, we actually still have those letters and we have the Beggs letter and we have the envelopes that these letters came in and they were licked DNA DNA and the individuals that are currently working on these cases, uh, including John Douglas, said, let's just find out. Uh-huh. And they requested to do DNA analysis on the licked flaps of the envelopes. Uh-huh. And New Jersey refuses to what? allow that to happen. The well, state of New okay. Jersey well, said Well, the state no. of New Jersey put the, that other guy to death. So Right. They say absolutely not. Oh, we could put it, we could so put this to rest right why now. Why would they say no? And they say no. Why? Don't know. They just say no. Absolutely not. Unreal. Yeah. So was it John Knoll who was Cemetery John? Was he one of the writers? Was Hotman one of the writers? Was he part of it? Was it Fish? Was it Limburg? Was it Sharp? Was it Gauss? Don't know, but we do know that we did convict and put to death Mr. Hoffman. All right, well, that's going to wrap up this episode. Um, yeah. If anybody has any comments, questions, um, if you can positive, tie negative, somebody any else more to information, the case. Um, if anybody's <laughs> read uh, that book, what's the name of that book? Cemetery, Cemetery John. John. Um, which I'm sure this is going to be on the reading I'm list. I'm sure it's going to be on the reading list yes. as well. Um, if anybody's read that and has some comments, there's actually some comments on this website. I just haven't had a chance to read them yet. But uh, we'd like to hear from you. And the way you could do that is go to our website, which is untoldhistoryrevealed.blogspot.com, and you can scroll down on the right-hand side. There's a form that you can fill out, and it'll shoot us an email. I would love to hear some more correspondence. Me too. Um, even if there's some topics you would like to hear, shoot us a. Uh, I'm sure we got something on something, or we can dig something up about it. Yeah, or if you have more information on any one of the topics that we've covered, That's that right. we, we can, can put follow. into a compilation of, hey, uh, our readers said this. Yeah, that'd be great. That would be awesome. Yeah. So, um, okay. So for now. Um, I guess we'll wrap this up. So until next time. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Untold History Review.